Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Leviticus, chapter 3. And this has to do with the peace offering. We studied the whole burnt offering. We studied the uh, meat offering. And now we come to the peace offering. And you find it in this whole chapter from verses 1 through 17. And also the law of the offering is found in Leviticus chapter 7, verses 11 through 16 and verses 28 through 36. You have the law of the offering found. After studying the offering found in the law of the offering found in the New Testament, they have their fulfillment in New Testament Scriptures. And we'll give you those Scriptures as we come to them. But let's read the portion. Let's read, well, let's read the whole of this uh, third chapter, if you will. <clears throat> it says, And if His oblation be a sacrifice of peace offering, if He offer it of the herd, whether it be uh, a male or female, He shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about. And he shall offer the sacrifice of the peace offering, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. The fat that covereth the inwards and all the fat that is upon the inwards and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them, which is by the flanks, and the call above the liver with the kidneys, it shall be, it shall he take away. And Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice which is upon the wood that is on the fire. It is an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Remember we said there are sweet savor offerings and non-sweet savor offerings. And if his offering for sacrifice of peace offering unto the Lord be of the flock. Now remember the first was of the herd, now it's of the flock. Male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offer a lamb for his offering, then shall he offer it before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand upon the head, the same thing, lay his hand upon the head of his offering, and kill it before the tabernacle of the congregation, and Aaron's son shall sprinkle the blood thereof round about upon the altar. And he shall offer the sacrifice of the peace offering, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. The fat thereof and the whole rump, it shall be, it shall he take off hard by the backbone and the fat that covereth the inwards and all the fat that is upon the inwards and the two kidneys and the fat that is upon them, which is by the flanks and the call above the liver, with the, the kidneys, it shall, it shall he take away. And the priest shall burn it upon the altar. It is food. It is the food of the offering made by fire unto the Lord. And if his offering be a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of it and kill it before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the sons of Aaron shall sprinkle the blood thereof upon the altar round about. The same process is used throughout, and he shall offer thereof his offering, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord, the fat that covereth the inwards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, which is by the flanks, and the call above the liver, 
with the kidneys, it, it shall he take away, and the priest shall burn them upon the altar. It is the food of the offering made by fire for a sweet savor. All the fat is the Lord's. That be burnt up as a sacrifice. It shall be a perpetual statue for your generations throughout all your dwellings that ye eat neither fat nor blood. All this was to be burned up. The way the Lord knew what was good for you in those days. All the fat was to be burned up and you were not to eat blood. Now then this peace offering is very interesting. We just read the record of it. And we find the fulfillment of it in the uh, Scriptures in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18, if you will. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. Notice what it says here. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So, there was no peace between God and man. That's 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. <clears throat> there was no peace or reconciliation until Jesus died on the cross to reconcile us unto God. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20, look at this one. It says here, "...and having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile..." So it's peace and reconciliation. Reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And it goes on to say, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. So the peace offering was made to reconcile those that offered them unto God, and therefore there could be peace. Now, the distinction of the features of the peace offering. The offering, or the offer, I should say, and the priest, each got a portion of it. The offer and the priest, each got a portion of this peace offering. You'll read on down where the priest took their portion of this offering. And especially in the law of the peace offering. And it was, to be, it was to be eaten before the Lord. Now, eating before the Lord is symbolical of communion with the Lord. This was eating before the Lord. And it's a picture of God and the sinner at peace with each other. All the issues between them are perfectly settled in the peace offering. It's the peace offering. It is peace upon the basis of mutually accepted sacrifice that both God and the offer accepts this sacrifice. And thus, it's a picture of reconciliation. So, by His death on the cross, Jesus satisfied the law. He satisfied the government of God. And He satisfied the heart of the sinner. And because of that satisfaction, Christ has reconciled us unto Himself. If you turn back to that passage of Scripture in uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter um, 5, we read verse 18, but let's go and read verse 19. It's, it says, "...to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation." So now that the message that we have is that God will reconcile sinners to Himself 
And the Word is to be given out from you and I. And verse 20 says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. Now then, on the basis of verse 21, For He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So, Christ took our sins. He made peace with the Father for us. And therefore, we can say that we're reconciled to God. And because this is true, God can be just and the justifier of all who accept Christ as Savior and all who accept the sacrifice of the cross. The moment the individual owns the death of the cross as a sacrifice for sin and claims Him who died thereon, claims Christ as a personal substitute, his sin both of nature and transgression is imputed uh, to Christ and then uh, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. God traded in the person of Christ our sins. He imputed our, our sins to Christ. And then as a result, He imputed Christ's righteousness to us. God made a trade and we got the best of the trade. Jesus suffered for our sins and our sins were counted to Him and His righteousness was counted to us. I mean, it's grace throughout and the love of God has done this for us. And the obedience of Christ unto death is imputed to the believer. And the believer is at once individually reconciled to God. We read Colossians 1, verse 21-22. But Romans 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, the word peace is mentioned again. Because the believer is perfectly, completely justified. And if you look at Romans chapter 3, let me read a few verses in the third chapter of Romans. It'll show that God is just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Let's uh, pick up with verse uh, 23. Romans 3.23 It says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Then it says, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He, that is God, might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Now, it says that God might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Now, think of it this way. Suppose someone might say, well, God is merciful and He will just ignore my sinfulness and, and forgive me because He's a merciful God. But He's also a just God. And His justice demands that our sins be punished because we're sinners. And our sins are punished in the person of Christ and by His death on the cross. And because God recognizes that our sins are punished, He, he is just in forgiving of us of our sins on the basis of Christ paying the penalty for our sins. You see, God didn't just look down from heaven and say, these people are all sinners 
Therefore, I'm going to extend my mercy to them and, and just forgive them. He wouldn't be just. He would be trying to justify us, but on the basis of no penalty. But He's justified us on the basis of a penalty and a price that was paid in full for our sins. And therefore, God is just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. You see the point? He wouldn't just bypass us and say, well, you know, they're sinners, but I'm just going to forget about all about it. No, because the penalty of sin had to be paid. And the price for our sins was paid. The full price for all of our sins. Past, present, and future. Someone says, well, how can my future sins be taken care of? Well, they were all in the future when Jesus died on the cross. And by the way, He died for all of those who in the past had had the same problem. From the beginning, from Adam on down through the time when He came and died for sins. He died, he died for the sins of those people of the Old Testament. And thus, they made sacrifices pointing forward to Christ's death. And we look back to Christ's death. It's the completed work. They look forward. Remember it says in Hebrews that the blood of goats and calves could never take away sins, though they offered them often. But it could never finally settle the sin question. And therefore, they were, when, the, when they were making these sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to a time that there would be a, a completed sacrifice that would take care of all the things that they uh, had in type and picture and shadow. And until Jesus died on the cross, there was never any completion to it. It was all looking forward. And now since Jesus has died on the cross, we look back with full assurance that it's already done. And we don't have to do any more. There's no more sacrifices. There's nothing else that we have to do other than accept what Jesus has com done completely for us. That's all you can do. No more. And so that's why, that's why it eliminates anything of our works. That, that's why it eliminates man trying to work his way to heaven. It eliminates anything we can do. It's totally and completely by grace. Through faith in what? In His finished work. The Bible says in the last part of Romans 4, He was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. And then Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, what, in His death and resurrection, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's reconciled us to God by Himself. If you look in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, I'll give you a scripture here we'll talk about a little bit. Luke 2, verse 14, when Jesus was born, the announcement was, was made. Suddenly, verse 13 says, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, by the way, they were not singing, they were saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now then, He did not come and make universal peace. It's God's will that men be at peace with Him. But uh, some have said that it, that it really means here, men of goodwill. But regardless of what uh, slant you put on it, it doesn't mean that Jesus came and made peace for the whole world and they have nothing to to worry about because of this announcement. Because a man has to accept the peace that he made on the cross. And uh, Jesus Himself said, 
He came to send a sword. He came to set a man at variance. Men and people at variance with one another. Because there's a variance where there is not those that believe and trust in the Lord. So the preaching of the gospel will not and has not brought universal peace because there won't be any universal peace till Christ comes again. And for over 2,000 years, the gospel has been preached. And we are farther from universal peace than ever before. Do you look around you and see, well, you know, universal peace is just on the horizon. It may be on the horizon, but it's not on the horizon until Jesus comes. And He will be the, He's the Prince of Peace. Human nature is at enmity with God. And there can be no peace as long as this condition exists, and it exists today, and is more evident than ever before. Enmity with God. And instead of peace, we find nations fulfilling what's written in uh, many of the prophets. Look at Joel 3, verse 9 and 10. Joel chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. It says this, Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let not the weak say, I'm strong. What? There will be a time that we'll beat the swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. But here, it was called upon to, to prepare for war. And that's what men are preparing for today and that's what's going on in the world. And instead of peace, we find the professing church not only in the midst of a world that's full of war, but in the hands of false teachers many times. There's all kinds of things going on in this world. So we do not have universal peace. We just need to settle that question up front. Now Christ Himself said He did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And there is a sword. He said that, remember in the Gospels, He said there would be variance between even households. There would be variance among people. And by the way, the keeping of the golden rule has never meant and was never meant to bring peace to the sinner. You'll find people say, I live by the golden rule. Yes, but you don't keep it. You may live by it, but you don't keep it. It's good for us to live right as Christians and to follow that golden rule and to do unto others as we would have them to do unto us if you want to put it in those terms. But we don't find people obeying that. You say, well, I'll obey it. Well, that will not save because our works do not save us. We cannot be good enough. We may have good intentions, but sooner or later they'll fall by the wayside. And the the child of God, the Christian, is taught to live godly and righteously. Remember that Scripture I gave you? Where is it? Titus chapter 2, verse 11. I said 13 the last time, but verse 11. Remember, I, I got it wrong. But I knew in my mind I was saying it wrong at the time. And I thought, well, I'm going to check that out. I didn't have to check it out because I could remember it later. But it's 2 verse 11, isn't it? And it says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation, listen carefully, hath appeared unto all men. Did I get the right verse? Okay. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. And what did we say? The grace that saves teaches. The grace that saves us teaches us how to live righteously, soberly and righteously and godly. And we said that's soberly is inwardly. Righteously is outwardly. And godly is upwardly. And that's and it teaches us what to do to deny, first of all, the negative side, to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. So there's some things that we do not put up with. There's some things that we're promoted to do. So we're talking about the individual soul finds peace with God only through the blood of, of the cross of Calvary. And, uh, and amid all the storms and trials of life and unrest that the world has, the most tempest-tossed soul can find a personal peace with God, but it's not going to be universal peace. It'll be a personal peace for those who believe. Now the offer, another thing, the offer ate the peace offering before the Lord. And this is the privilege of the weakest believer who can rest in complete assurance that God the Father has been completely satisfied in the blood of Christ, in the blood of His Son. Every believer can find the light in the fellowship with the Father through the blood of Christ. Because God is satisfied. The Bible says, He shall see the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. The peace offering is different from the burnt offering and the meat offering. Remember we studied the burnt offering first, and secondly the meat offering, chapter 2, and now the peace offering. And the peace offering is different than these two offerings. Remember the burnt offering is Christ offering Himself in all of His devotedness and all of His divine perfection completely unto the Father. A whole burnt offering. Remember we studied that. He's presenting Himself totally for the Father. And then the meat offering is Christ, the perfect, spotless, sinless man. It represents Him in His manhood. Perfectly sinless and spotless. But the peace offering is Christ making peace between a holy God and a guilty man. And so He made peace for us because we all were guilty and are guilty before God and need that peace to be made. And that the peace offering is needed reveals... Clearly that something is wrong between God and man. Why is it needed? Because something's wrong between God and man. Man was born at enmity with God. Remember old David in his repentant psalm? He said, In sin did my mother conceive me. He didn't mean it was sinful for them to, ha to have him born, but he meant that the nature of his birth, that he was a sinful person. He meant that all people that are born of men and women are sinful by nature. And that's what he meant. And our lives indicate that we're at enmity with God. Isaiah 53, look at Isaiah 53. And uh, we'll see a verse of Scripture here that help us. Isaiah 53, and now look at verse uh, 6. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's at enmity with God. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. When it says, and the Lord hath laid on him, that means God has imputed to Christ. Just as the priest on the Day of Atonement, we studied in 23rd of probably Leviticus or on down, somewhere along there, uh, we'll find that 
uh, on the Day of Atonement. And I may have the wrong chapter there, but anyway, later on in the book of Leviticus, we'll find that the, the priest came and laid his hand upon the head of a goat that was bearing the sins. And also, there was one goat that was, that was killed. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of all, of us all. That is, laid upon Christ. Just as the priest laid his hands upon the head of that live goat that was a part of the sacrifice because the two goats were taken together for a sin offering on the Day of Atonement. One was killed and the blood was shed. But the other, uh, the priest would lay his hand upon his head and confess on the head of that live goat all the sins, it says, and all the iniquities of all the children of Israel. Then it was taken away into the wilderness and let go. And then the man, it says, by the hand of a fit man or a qualified man, and he came back. He let the goat go in the wilderness. And he came back. And thus, it was proclaimed that the sins of the children of Israel, every individual one of them, was taken away into a land of forgetfulness. Therefore, God says of you and I, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So, uh, that's what John meant when he said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. He didn't say the sins of the world. He said the sin of the world. Did you notice that? Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. So all the sin, the sins are individual things, but the sin and the penalty due sin was taken away by Christ. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away. And he meant, when he says taketh away, he means bear away, just like it, it was borne away by this goat in the Old Testament that was led away. And therefore, God says in the 103rd Psalm, He said, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath they removed our transgressions from us. That may be down about verse 12. Let's see if it is. Psalm 103. Psalm. Let me check that one out. The 103rd Psalm. I know it's the 103rd, but I don't know if I've got the right verse, but we'll check it out. 103rd Psalm. It is verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgression from us. You've heard me elaborate on that time and time again, which what? Is what? Not the north or the south, but the east and the west. Right? If God said, as far as the north is from the south, I'm going to remove your sin, we say, well, if we go to the North Pole, we catch up with all of them. If we go to the South Pole, we'll catch up with all of them. But God said, as far as the east, east is from the west. And you just go around the equator from now on, don't you? And you go around this globe and belt this globe as many times as you want, and you still never catch up with them. Because God has removed them as far as the east is from the west. There's Scripture that says that He's buried them in the depths of the sea. There's other Scriptures that says that He had blotted them out as a thick cloud. And there's another Scripture that says, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. He blotted them out of His remembrance. Now, we can't do that, but God can. You know, we're going to remember things. And sometimes to our detriment. A whole lot of times. Remember the rich man and Lazarus? And Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime, you're going to remember things in your lifetime. Receive thy good things. 
and Lazarus evil things. He didn't. He meant evil or uncomfortable or things that were not really good for him. Didn't mean evil in his life, but he meant the evil things or the things he went through in suffering. But he says now he is comforted from all those evil things, and thou art tormented. So we find that uh, this enmity existed until Jesus took care of it. And all men have sinned, showing the need of a peace offering. We have a need. God's Word says there is none righteous. No, not one. You have Isaiah 53, verse 6. If you want to copy these down, our lives indicate that we are at enmity. Isaiah 53, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Romans 3, verse 10. None righteous. Uh, Romans 3.23, all have sinned. So that shows the need for this peace offering that we're talking about. Now then, man cannot make this peace offering by himself or for himself. See, they tried, they showed it in the Old Testament offering, a sacrifice. But they couldn't complete it. This was all a picture of the future one who would make peace by the blood of his cross. But they never could make peace They could follow these rituals and these things that God specified, but all of these things, that all the bloodshed, all the pictures, all the sacrifices, were only pictures of what was to come and pointed to Christ. And had He not made peace on the cross, they would still be offering those offerings and we would still be trying to find a way to make peace with God. Aren't you glad that some 2,000 years ago that was settled? Completely? and totally, and once and for all. It says, but now once in the end of the world hath He appeared to put away sin. That's what we're talking about. By the sacrifice of Himself. You find that in Hebrews 9. Look in Hebrews the ninth chapter. You'll find it in verse uh, 26, the last part of it. But now once in the end of the world hath He appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Hebrews 9 verse 26. And if it were not so, he would have suffered many times since the foundation of the world. Verse 27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And remember we've expounded that. He shall appear the second time without sin. That doesn't mean he had any to appear without. It means that he has already settled the question of sin, and when he comes again, that won't even be a problem because he'll come to take us unto himself. Under salvation, that means the final completion of our salvation. So, back to our lesson in uh, Leviticus chapter 3, we're still talking about man not being able to make this peace for himself. Christ must die. God provided a way that man could obtain this peace because Christ must die, and having died, He proves the fact that there is. He proves the fact that there is no enmity on God's part toward us now, because God is satisfied. And all the enmity, therefore, the enmity between God and man is settled as far as God is concerned. But man has not, until he accepts Christ, he's still at enmity with God. See, there are men that are still at enmity with God. But once they accept Christ, there's no enmity because God is already satisfied that He's going to reconcile. And He will on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. 
And so we stand before God as debtors absolutely unable to meet our obligations. And when Christ died, He opened a fountain whereby peace can be received through His blood. Now God is satisfied with the peace offering of Christ. And so are we satisfied with His peace offering when we accept Christ. Remember Isaiah 53 verse 11 says, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. For by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So, if God is satisfied, and He's not at enmity with us, how is it that we cannot be at enmity with Him? Only by accepting Christ. That's the only way that enmity will be removed. That's why you find people all over the world going around, and they hate God. They won't accept Christ. They... they, they uh, are in enmity with God. And the only way that that will be settled is when they accept the reconciliation that God has already made for them to do. That's why it says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's why, there's, that's why it's uh, incumbent upon man to receive what God has done or else he'll continue to be at enmity. That's why you find these loud atheists crying out, you know, against God and people all around the, the country. And they don't have to be as cold as atheists because they're just as cold if they do not receive Christ as their Savior. They're just as far away. Because the Bible says, He that believeth on Him, listen, is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he had not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He didn't do, have to do anything more than be at enmity with God. That's where men stand. That's John 3, verse 18, I believe. And then 3, verse 36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So, standing under condemnation, John three eighteen, and the wrath of God abiding on him, John 3, verse 36. So man is still at enmity with God. But God is not at enmity with man. On his part, it's taken care of. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And so, it's on man's part now to repent of sin and turn to Christ. In other words, he's left us with a responsibility now. And because God is satisfied, therefore God enjoys fellowship with Christ. And we enjoy fellowship with Christ because we're reconciled to God. Those believers can enjoy fellowship with Christ. And so, that's where we stand now. We're going to continue to talk about, there's some more things, let's see, about the peace offering that we'll have to discuss, but our time is gone. Uh, the different victims and the uh, offer and some other things. Well, give me, give me five minutes and I'll get it all. Get it all. There are three different victims that are used in the peace offering. But it's a male or female of the herd without blemish. And that signifies devotedness. And it's of the flock, a male or female without blemish, signifying consecration. And a goat signifying Christ taking the sinner's place. And then the offerer laid his hands upon the head of the offering, showing identification with the sacrifice. This symbolizes that the offering was our substitute, peace offering, just as we uh, receive Christ. Symbolically, this shows that we're directly responsible. By the way, get this, that we're directly 
was responsible for the death of Christ. Someone said, I'm not responsible for the death of Christ. Those people that put Him on the cross. But our sins and the very fact that we accept Him shows that that we're responsible for His death because we accept Him as our substitute. That's a hard pill to take, isn't it? Now, had we been there, we might not have participated in that evil work. But if we had not participated, we probably had our hearts turned toward the Lord for our salvation. The offer... The offer back there killed the sacrifice. Remember, we just studied. He'd bring it to the door of the tabernacle and he'd kill the sacrifice. And this offering was to be offered, listen carefully, with unleavened cakes mingled with oil. The unleavened speaks of the sinlessness of Christ. The oil is symbolical of the fact that Christ died under the direct leading of the Holy Spirit and anointing of the Holy Spirit. And however... Uh, the offer was to offer leavened bread. Let me give you that verse. Look in, we've been talking about unleavened bread, but look at uh, chapter 7, verse 13 quickly. It says, Beside the cakes he shall offer for his offering leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offering. What does this indicate? In all these sacrifices, it was unleavened bread. But this leavened bread speaks of a different thing. The leaven testified to the fact that though we have peace with God because of the perfect work of Christ, there is still evil in man, in his nature and in his flesh. You see that? The leaven bread signifies that there is still evil. The flesh of the sacrifice was beaten at once. None of it was to be left, left as late as the third day. And this indicates that our fellowship with God comes through the death of Christ, not the resurrection. And at Calvary, we see Christ had sin, now look, on Him, but no sin in Him. Our sins were laid on Him, but He had no sin in Him. And the, the penitent thief had sin in Him, but he had no, because of Calvary, it made it possible that He had no sin on Him. See the difference? He had sin in him, but Christ removed it from him. And the impenitent thief had sin in him and sin on him. He had both of them because he didn't repent. And so you and I may have sin in us, but there's no sin on us. And so we find that as human beings, we know we still have a sinful nature that's in us. But there's no sin on us because Jesus removed that. And therefore, we're at peace with God. And this sin that is, this sin that is uh, in us, we're told to, to deal with it. And uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, he tells us that this is the case, but Romans uh, chapter 6 also tells us that sin shall not have dominion over you. For you're not under the law, but under grace. So sin is not going to dominate or have dominion in your life if you're a child of God. You may stumble and fall. You may commit a sin, trespasses, and we'll deal with the law, the trespass offering later on. But you will not live in sin because you're a child of God. And God will chasten you the very minute you get out of line. He tells us He's going to do that. And if you get out of line, you can just expect it coming. It's just like a little boy or girl and 
Their parents told them not to do certain things and they go ahead and do it. They know they're inviting what? Chastening. We're children of God. And we know what God has told us to do. And when we get out of line, we know that we can expect that He's going to correct us one way or another. Because the Bible says, Whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. So, and you find all that in Hebrews chapter 12 if you want the passage. It will show you about God's chastening. The 12th of Hebrews. By the way, the book of Hebrews is a good commentator on all of these things of the Old Testament. The tabernacle. Remember how often we referred to it when we was teaching the tabernacle?